morning. Thanks so much uh, for being with us today. Excited to spend some time in God's Word this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8. We began this journey last week uh, looking at Daniel chapter 7 and, and considering the theme of, of what it means to be between two worlds, between the world that is now and the, and the world that's to come. But uh, for a moment here at the beginning, uh, I want to step back and, and just remind us of, of why we find ourselves right here right now in the second half of the book of Daniel. And before Easter, and really at the beginning of the year, we began looking at Daniel chapters 1 through 6. And as we looked at those chapters, we saw uh, this consistent message of uh, God is calling his people to be faithful in exile. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, we, we are a lot like the people of Israel in the time of Daniel. We ourselves are in exile. In fact, First Peter tells us that we're sojourners and exiles in the world. We're not exiles because we've been defeated and carried off into a foreign land, uh, but we're exiles. We're sojourners because we belong to Christ. In, in many ways, we're not exiles because we've been defeated. We're exiles because we have victory. We have new life in Christ, and we belong to the world that's to come, and yet God is calling us to be in the world and yet not of the world. But as we saw in Daniel 1 through 6, God's calling us not only not to be of the world, to be distinct and set apart, but he's actually calling us to be for the world. He's calling us to be a people who seek the good of the world around us, who, who carry out the mission of God and the message of the gospel uh, to those around us. And as I think about where we're at right now as a church, I, I don't think that we could have a more poignant message for us, that God's calling us right now, right here, to be faithful to his mission as his exiled people. Uh, we, we took a break, though, as we finished up chapter 6, as we entered into the Lenten season, to look at Jesus' journey to the cross in Luke chapter 22 through 24. We didn't know then uh, that we would find ourselves in a global pandemic, but uh, as I think about uh, the moment that we found ourselves in as we approached Easter and, and really the moment that we're still in today, I can't think of a more uh, important message for us to consider than the, the death and the resurrection of Christ, the, the death of Christ that, that puts to death sin and death itself and the, the resurrection of Christ, which promises new life and gives us hope in the present and a confident expectation of what's to come. And now we step back in to this latter half of the book of Daniel, and we, we look at this fascinating and somewhat strange part of the book that, that speaks of the world that's to come, and, and this, uh, this tension of what it means to live between this present world and the world to come. And, and as we look at Daniel 8 today, I, I want to help us as we think about what it means to be between two worlds and what it means to, to really live in light of the end, to live in light of, the, of what God's going to do at the end of time when Jesus returns. I, I want to really help set some framework uh, for, for what it means uh, to live in light uh, of the end times. Uh, th this topic is called eschatology, the study of last things or the, the end of times. So we're, we're going to dive in and, and do an overview of this topic, and, and, and not, not like a lecture or like a class, but, but I think it's so important. It's a, it's a fascinating topic and a confusing topic, but it's central uh, to what we believe. It, it's, it's central to the truth that Jesus is, is going to come again and, and that there will be an end of time and a, a time in which God makes all things new. And so I want to help set the stage for us so that we understand this bigger picture of the end of times. 
uh, as well as to, to kind of navigate some of the things that are confusing and maybe debated uh, amongst Christians as we look at this topic. But I think as we set that overview, it'll help us as we look at Daniel's uh, final chapters in verses 7 through 12 or chapters 7 through 12 to better understand them and better understand how they fit not only within the book of Daniel, but within the bigger picture of God's story throughout the scriptures. And, and ultimately, as we look at Daniel 8 and every week as we look at God's word, we're, we're always asking the question, so what? What does it mean? How does it make a difference in our lives? And so I hope today as we do this overview of eschatology and we look at Daniel chapter 8 that we can end with this message of, of what it means for us today. So I said earlier that uh, we're going to begin with this study of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end times or, or final things. The, the Bible often uses the phrase last days or on the last day or in the last days. And, and really it's talking about uh, what happens leading up to and surrounding the second coming of Jesus. Sometimes when we think about eschatology or the study of end times, we think about things on a personal level like uh, our own physical resurrection or heaven and hell or what happens to us when we die before the resurrection, the intermediate state. Uh, and those are important topics. But today I really want us to, to really focus in on this, this bigger question of, of what happens at the second coming of Christ. What, what happens before Christ comes and what happens after he comes and how should we live in light of those truths. That's, that's where uh, we're, we're headed today. Uh, it's been said that eschatology is one of the topics that the people in the church uh, are most interested in studying. Uh, and yet, ironically, it's one of the topics that pastors are least interested in teaching. It's, it's maddeningly uh, confusing at times and yet fascinating and yet central. This idea that Jesus is coming back, this is central to our faith. And so uh, we, we, uh, we, we're excited to, uh, to dive in and look at chapters 1 through 6 and this call to faithfulness and exile. But we also have to step into these mysterious and interesting chapters here at the end of Daniel to understand what it means to live between two worlds as God's people in this present age in light of the age to come. Uh, you know, when we think about end times this week, I, I found myself, um, you know, thinking about uh, this, this reality. And, and sometimes we're so busy that we don't have time to think about the, the end of the world. Uh, but the, the really interesting thing about where we find ourselves now is... Uh, I think everyone's kind of found themselves thinking about, is this the end? Is this it? Um, I know we all need some perspective, and Lord willing, there's, there's going to be uh, another side of this, and we're going to see things uh, come, come again to, to maybe be more, more normal or at least a, a new normal. Uh, but uh, this week, as uh, I was making my coffee this morning, uh, one morning as the, the coffee pot stopped working, um, I looked over outside and it began to snow and I thought about being stuck in my home during a global pandemic and I thought maybe this is it, maybe this really is the last day, right? Like we all have maybe that moment where we're uh, trying to make sense of where we find ourselves. Well, that, that's, that's in a way what I, I want us to talk about today um, is, is what happens at the end. Why does it matter? What should we think about what God's word has to say? Um, and, and so as we think about eschatology and this topic of the end times, I want to begin at maybe an interesting point. Uh, and, and it's this, that the most central idea uh, or element to understand regarding eschatology or the end times is not how to interpret Daniel or how to interpret Revelation, but 
I actually believe the most central element that we need to understand is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The most central element to understanding the end times is understanding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the most important element. The, the idea of the, the last day or, or the last days we, we see spoken of uh, in the New Testament. Uh, but interestingly, it, it says that the last days has come upon us through Jesus' first coming, through his death and his resurrection. Um, and, and yet we are still awaiting the final day, the, the ultimate last day when, when Jesus returns. And so in a way what happens as you look at the Old Testament, with the Old Testament anticipated uh, happening on the last day, we could say it this way, God did in the middle of time what many people expected him to do at the end of time when he sent Jesus to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death and to rise victorious from the dead. So in Jesus's first coming, the Bible says that the kingdom of God has now come, that, that the, the, the last days have come upon us in the present day. Uh, but it's come about in, a, in an inaugurated way, but not in a, in a fully and complete way. We still await the completion or the full consummation of God's kingdom in the last days to come. And the Bible says that this will come at Jesus' second coming. He came first in a manger. He'll come again riding on the clouds to execute judgment and will come in glory. We, we in fact, saw a glimpse of this in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And, and in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus says that the fulfillment of that passage of Daniel 7, of the Son of Man coming, uh, it, it came about in two parts. First, Jesus' first coming through his death and resurrection, and then finally in his second coming. So as, as we understand what it means to live between two worlds, between the world uh, that is and the world to come, we also live between two comings. You could uh, see this on the screen. The, the, the world, the present age or the world that is and the, the world to come kind of overlap here through the, the first and second coming of Jesus. And in between these two comings, between his first coming and his second coming is where we find ourselves today. In the already and not yet of God's kingdom in the between two worlds, between this present world and the world to come. And that's, that's where we find ourselves today. And in this uh, in-between now and not yet, the, the blessings of the end of times have come upon us in the present time. And so everyone who is a follower of Christ, everyone who puts their trust in Jesus, has in part experienced the blessings of the future kingdom of God. We've experienced what it means to, to have our sins forgiven and to be brought into the family of God. And, and we've been given and indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that we're free from the, the power and the guilt of sin and we're made alive in Christ. And yet we, we have this tension that uh, we still wrestle with our, our sinful desires and we still live in a broken world and things aren't as they're supposed to be. And so we long for the kingdom to come in full. The kingdom is now and not yet. We live between this present world and the world to come and between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can say that we're living in the last days. So as the Bible talks about the last days, there are things that are still to come. But understand, as a, uh, as a follower of Christ and in light of Jesus' first coming, whether you accept Christ as Lord and Savior or not, we find ourselves in the last days. So this isn't something that's further out from us that doesn't really concern us. This is something that defines our present reality, that we live in the last days. 
Uh, and perhaps if you didn't believe it, maybe you believe it now after a global pandemic, right? Uh, but our anticipation of what's to come and the purpose that we have in this life is shaped by this reality of Jesus' death and resurrection and by the hope and anticipation of his return. If you're a follower of Christ, the end times matters to you because it's the current context that you find yourself in. And it's also the very place in which God is calling you to carry out his mission in the world for his glory. We're living in the last days and the last days should define our life and it should define the church. And so when we think about this topic, there's a few things that I I want us to to really be confident that we can know. Um, And then there are some things that I want to touch on that that we often debate within the church. And it's important to, to look at it in this way because sometimes when we think about eschatology, all we think about are uh, maybe, maybe the belief of whatever we grew up with, of our expectation of the end. I, I remember as a kid watching uh, the, the movie Armageddon uh, with Bruce Willis, and, and I think that really shaped my mind as to what I thought the end of the world you know, was going to look like. Um, and then I heard that Jesus was going to come back and all these crazy things were going to happen. And uh, I was pretty, pretty terrified. Uh, it wasn't ultimately until later in life when, when I came to know Christ. But uh, we inevitably have kind of background experiences, perhaps, of what we think about the end of the world. Or, or maybe we've studied this topic some and, and we're, you know, we know enough to be dangerous, so to speak. Uh, but whatever we think, um, I, I want us to, to be able to, to have some, some things that we can take hold of and say, these things we, we know, these things the Bible are clear on. There's some other things that we can debate that the Bible maybe isn't as clear on. But uh, before we jump into Daniel 8, there's some things that I think it's important for us to say, here's what we can know. So what can we all agree on? And the first thing is this, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. He told his disciples in John 14, 1 through 3, that Uh, He said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have not told you that I go there to prepare a a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 30 through 31, that the day will come when the sign of the Son of Man will appear. And he will come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then he will gather uh, together all of God's elect from the four winds, from the four corners of the earth. He will gather them together when he comes again. And ultimately, when Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the angels that were there, they said to the disciples who looked on as Jesus ascended, and they said, why are you standing here looking at this? Just as Jesus ascended, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is returning, and his return will not be mystical or spiritual. His return will be physical. His return will be visible. His return will be personal. I'm returning for you, Jesus said, and his return will be full of glory. It will be glorious. I, I often joke when it comes to eschatology, uh, there's, a, there's a song I, um, uh, I have in my mind that just kind of rings in my ears as I think about this topic by Crystal Lewis, a song from the 90s, and it's all the glory of the 90s Christian uh, music uh, scene, if you, if you want to look it up. But it's called Jesus is Coming. The, the lyrics are simple. Um, Jesus is coming. People get ready. Soon we'll be going home. 
That's, that's the, the simple message. And some people, when they think about eschatology, they're like, look, I don't want to deal with all the craziness. I just know that Jesus is coming and we need to be ready. And that's the end of the story. And in a, in a very real way, I want to say good job, Crystal Lewis, because that, that is a, an important central message that we can hold on to regarding the study of the end times, that Jesus is coming and his return will be physical, it will be visible, it will be personal, and it will be glorious. And when Jesus comes, the Bible says that all will be resurrected. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, which we'll look at in two weeks, it says that many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus said in John chapter 5, why do you marvel at this? For the hour is coming when all those who are in tombs will hear hear the voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And ultimately, in 1 Corinthians, it says, Just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ will be raised. All will be resurrected. The Bible says not only those who believe, but those who don't believe. And it says in, in, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 42 through 49, that when that resurrection day comes, that uh, the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. This is talking about our resurrected bodies. What's sown in a natural body is raised in a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the, the man of the earth, from the dust. The second man is from heaven. And ultimately, just as Jesus was raised from the dead, and just as Jesus was ascended into heaven and will come again physically, visibly, personally, gloriously, so we will be raised. And as a believer, the Bible teaches that for all those who are in Christ, that our resurrected bodies will be physical, just as everyone else's will be, those who believe as well as those who don't. But for the believer, we have the hope that our resurrected bodies will be glorious They'll be transformed. They'll be made new. We'll be restored fully to the image of God. So Jesus is coming and all will be resurrected. And woven within these passages is a third truth that that is central to our understanding of the end times that we can agree on. And it's this, that all will face judgment day. All will be raised and that there will be a judgment day. Some of our verses above indicated that there will be a resurrection. Those who are in Christ to, to everlasting life and to those who, uh, who have rejected Christ and resisted God to a day of judgment. Hebrews says, verse, uh, chapter 9, verses 27 through 28, Just as it appointed as for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered up once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He's coming to save those who wait for him. He's coming to bring judgment when he returns. And in fact, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 12, it says, I saw in a vision, John the apostle says, a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And then there was another book which was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. 
and the believer is judged based on what is written in the book of life, that we belong to Christ. So when we face judgment, we'll face not a judgment uh, of our works and whether or not we've earned our salvation. Our salvation's been given to us freely when our names were written in the book of life, when we put our trust in Jesus. We'll be rewarded for the good deeds that we've done uh, in obedience to God. But all those who are apart from Christ will face a judgment based upon what they have done. And apart from Christ, there's not enough good that we could do to make us acceptable in God's sight. The only thing that makes one acceptable in God's sight when they stand before God on judgment day is whether or not they stand fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ by putting their trust in Him alone. I love this quote by an author, Randy Alcorn. He says, In the day that we stand before our Master and Maker, it won't matter how many people on earth knew our name, how many people called us great, or how many considered us fools. That's good news for some of us. It won't matter whether schools or hospitals were named after us. It won't matter whether our estate was large or small, or if you even know what an estate is. It won't matter if your funeral drew 10,000 or if your funeral drew no one. It won't matter if the newspapers or online, this is maybe an old article. It won't matter if the history books knew who we were. The only thing that will matter on that day is one thing and one thing only, and that's what our master thinks of us. And the way you can be sure that when you stand before God on judgment day, the way you can be sure of what your master and maker thinks of you is if you come to him holding on to nothing but Jesus Christ. And on that day when we face judgment as believers, we'll be accepted into God's kingdom. But we also know that on that day when Christ returns, the Bible says that God will make all things new. Romans 8 says that creation is longing for the the new creation. It waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, which will take place at the, the resurrection when Jesus returns. Now creation is subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. All of creation will be restored and made new. It says in in Revelation 21 that when John looked at the end, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first earth and the first heaven had passed away and, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. When God makes all things new, it says in that day when he's with us and we're with him, he'll wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. The former things have passed away. God is making all things new. This we can hold on to. This we know. And and you know, in many ways, when I think about this truth that God is making all things new, the fact that there is a God of justice and that there is a day in which all the sad things will come untrue and all the things will be made new, that truth is what should sustain us in the midst of our darkest days. Look, if there's not a God who's making all things new and it's up to us to make everything new in this present moment, what hope do we have? Our hope is that there is a God who will make all things new. And in the darkest of days, that truth compels us to do what's right and true no matter what the the current environment or opinion about it may be. Jesus is coming, and when he comes, all will be made new. And ultimately, in light of these truths, the one message that Jesus presses home when he teaches about the end times that rings loudly and clearly, it's this, we must be ready. This we can know. 
that we must be ready. Jesus said uh, in Matthew 24 that concerning the day or the hour of his return, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware that the flood was coming, and it swept them away. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, and one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one left. Therefore, stay awake, Jesus said. For you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left this house to be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not know. Are you ready? Are you ready for him to come? Jesus says, be ready, be watchful. And and as we are ready and as we're watchful, uh, there's this, this other truth that comes about that's woven into this idea of being ready, and it's, it's understanding why Jesus has delayed his return. Peter helps us understand this in, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. He says, since all these things are to be dissolved and, uh, and on this new world is to come, in light of the, the end times, in light of the last days, he says, what sort of people should we be? We ought to be people who live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, living in the present in light of his return. And and because he's coming again, because he's holy and pure, he's calling us to be holy and pure. And he says, but when we think about his coming, God isn't slow to fulfill his promises, as though some may think of him, but instead it says that his delay in his coming isn't because he's slow to fulfill his promises, but, but listen to what it says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. His delay is for our repentance. He's calling everyone everywhere to put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone. He's calling every believer everywhere to live a life now in light of his return, a life of holiness and godliness. Are you ready? We, we can know these things. There's a lot of things we can debate, but we can know this, that when he comes, we are to be ready. As God's people, we are to be ready by living lives of holiness. We're also to be ready by holding out this message of of God's patience and God's kindness that calls us to repentance and offers us new life in Him. And as I think about this message and this idea of the end times and we think about His coming and whether or not we're ready, I, I just have to offer to you, not just as a tag on to the end of this message, but in light of what God's Word says to us, if, if we're to be ready, if He were to return today, would you be ready? Would you be ready to stand before him at the great throne of judgment? Would you be ready to give an account of him? No, listen, I'm not saying have you done enough that's good. I'm saying have you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone? Have you turned to him as your savior? Listen, the Bible, the Bible says that it's not a magic thing that happens to become a Christian. 
it's, it's God working in your heart if in this moment you think, I know that I'm not right with God. I know that I've got things in my life that aren't pleasing to God. The Bible calls that sin. And the Bible says that we're to turn away from our sin. Not to, to start fresh with a clean slate. The Bible says we turn away from our sin and we run to Christ and say, forgive me. Because you died on the cross for me. And you rose from the dead. I give you my life. I want you to be in charge. Save me. Make me new. I'm yours. And if you'll pray that with the, uh, the honesty and conviction of your heart, the Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we want to help you know what it means to, to follow Christ. It's the best decision you'll ever make to give your life to Christ. And we want to walk with you as you grow in what that means as a follower of Christ. Let us know. You have an opportunity to respond in our comments so that we can follow up with you and connect to help you with that very decision. And as a believer, Jesus is coming. Look, sometimes we, we get busy and, and we don't have time to think about these things or sometimes we get lazy and we don't want to think about these things. But one thing is clear. Jesus said, if you knew when I was coming, you would get ready. If the, if the owner knew when the thief was coming, he would have been ready for the thief. Well, Jesus is coming, and we don't know the hour, but we do know what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to a life of godliness and holiness. He's calling us to live in light of his, of his return. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said, Lord, as his prayer, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Put eternity before me and let me ever live in light of your return. Let me live every day as if it's the last day, as if it's the day that you return, so that I would live with a, an urgency and an anticipation and a joyful expectation that this world isn't my home, but that I'm going to go and be with my Savior. Having that mind doesn't make us no earthly good, but if we have a heavenly mind, we'll be of maximal earthly good for our Savior. So these things we know. And I wish we could just end there because that's the, the good news uh, that we have about uh, eschatology of what we know. But there are a lot of things that we debate. And, and some of these things we can't dive into their fullness, but there are two things that, that we debate. And I'll say this. As we think about what we debate, um, the Bible's clear on what we know. These things that we debate are not first-level doctrine, like uh, whether or not the, the Trinity is true, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or that Jesus is fully God and fully man, or that he died on the cross for our sins, or rose bodily from the dead, or that he was born of a virgin, or that he, was, that he will return at the end. Those things are primary foundational doctrine. There, there are other things like, say, baptism and the Lord's Supper and our understanding of those topics that are second level, that often define how we, uh, maybe it will define what kind of church you go to. Um, and, and they're important for us to, to understand. The Bible speaks directly to them. Well, th this topic is third level. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things that that we look at and can understand differently. And frankly, uh, as you've read through Daniel, as you read last week and we'll read this week, there's a lot that seems kind of hard to wrap our minds around. Uh, and that's why it's important to wrestle with those unclear things in light of what we know to be abundantly clear from the scriptures. And so what is it that we debate when we think about these things? I, I want us to, to consider just two. Uh, the first is, what are the signs of the end and when will they happen? Uh, we see all throughout the Bible that there are these signs or events that are going to come about. In fact, we see this in Matthew uh, chapter 20, 24, verses 3 through 14. We won't read it all, but as Jesus is teaching his disciples, uh, they say to him, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming 
and of the end of the age. They say, well, what, what's going to happen and when's it going to come? And, and Jesus uh, says to them, he says, don't be led astray. Many will come in my name. They will try to lead you astray. You'll hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. And he goes on to talk about tribulation and how believers will be put to death and hated by all nations for his namesake. And false prophets will arise and lawlessness will increase. And uh, there will be one, uh, he ultimately says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world. So these signs that Jesus talks about. And uh, for our context, Daniel chapter 7 through 12, there's a lot of topics or events that it speaks of uh, that, that are still to come. And, uh, and we have to wrestle with what are these signs and events and when will they happen? What are they referring to? Uh, and so when we, when we look at them, uh, we, uh, we can have kind of four ways that we can understand them. These these four ways typically define the way that the book of Revelation especially is interpreted, but I think it's helpful for us to think about all prophetic and ap apocalyptic signs and events. Um, and there's, there are these four views. I'm, I'm not diving in deep. I just, you know, I'm trying to throw these things out to give some, some context. One view, the preterist view, says that all these things have been uh, fulfilled in the first few centuries of Christianity, particularly referencing the book of um, of, of Revelation, or that maybe there are some things that occur closer to the time of the prophecy or the vision, like in the book of Daniel. Um, then there's a historist view, which says that the signs or the events are being fulfilled throughout the course uh, of Western Christian history, that there, there are a lot of people who will look at the Bible and see what's happening and say Daniel or Revelation and say, what this is talking about is happening right now that there's this specific reference to this world event uh, that's taking place. And then there's another perspective that says all these things, the futurist perspective, that all these things are largely unfulfilled and await a future fulfillment, that we're, we're waiting for the day in which these things will be fulfilled. And then there's the idealist view that says these things are fulfilled symbolically throughout the history of the church, that it's not referring to a specific this is that kind of moment, but that there's this symbolic pattern or, or, uh, or a pattern that we see that often repeats itself that climaxes at the end of time. Uh, and, and that's how we can understand these signs and events. In a way, honestly, as you look at different passages in the Bible, each of these four different views at times are more helpful than others. I think especially the preterist, futurist, and idealist perspective help us as we wrestle with all the signs and the events. Some of them have a near-term fulfillment, some of them have a fully future fulfillment. Some of them, I think, are symbolic patterns that tend to repeat themselves and reach a climax at the end of times. And I, I think maybe the most helpful thing to, to hear at this point is what Peter says uh, in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. He says that concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours, they searched and inquired carefully about what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating, about his suffering and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they weren't serving themselves, but us, the church, and the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In a way, we could say as we look at Old Testament prophecies and apocalyptic visions, that uh, there's near-term fulfillment, future fulfillment, and even symbolic fulfillment. And in fact, the New Testament authors often tell us that Old Testament prophecies 
were fulfilled in unexpected ways through Jesus and through connection to Jesus through the church. So as we look at these uh, events and uh, these signs, we have to approach them with humility. And that's, that's what I'd say. We have debates about these topics, but we have to approach it with humility as we try to understand fulfillment of prophecy and end times events. Uh, the Bible says we see through a mirror dimly. And when it comes to, to prophecy, that is certainly true. So there's helpful ways to approach these confusing questions, uh, but we ultimately approach them with humility and keep driving ourselves back to the Scripture, saying, what does God's Word say? How does it match with what it said before and in light of the whole message? And the second question is, uh, that we debate about is, what happens at the second coming of Christ? And so there's, there's some debate over exactly what happens right before and immediately after the second coming of Christ. And, and really, this hinges around one passage in the, Old, in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through, 1 through 6. These, these verses speak of a thousand-year time period that the Apostle John says uh, that he saw thrones and seated on them were those who had authority to judge what was committed. And he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and received its mark, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. These verses, Revelation 21 through 6, um, there's a debate over what exactly the thousand years is referring to. Uh, and and how, these, how this thousand year period relates to the, to the second coming of Christ. Uh, in fact, there's, there's one author who said it this way. He said, the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about. Um, there really are all these different, they're not all these, there's only three main views that, uh, that have been seen throughout the church as it comes to this topic, but uh, they divide people along these three lines, and the, the three lines are this. The first is called post-millennialism, and that means that the millennium, these, this thousand-year period in Revelation 20, comes about gradually, and Jesus will return after the millennium, and thus post-millennialism. So the 1,000 years are not literal, but they signify a long period of time in which the world's transformed by the gospel. This is the church age. Christ will return after this time, and it's after the millennial reign that the new heaven and the new earth will arrive when Jesus comes back. So this is post-millennial. This is a minority view by most Christians today, but it's one that, uh, that many people hold. Then there's premillennialism, and this says that the millennium will come suddenly, and Jesus will return before the millennium. And after Jesus returns, there'll be a literal period of time in which Christ will return to earth and reign with believers for a thousand years. Uh, and when God does this, uh, he'll bring everything to the end uh, at the millennium and establish the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, this is called premillennialism. There's a, uh, a unique uh, kind of subset of this that believes that actually the church, right before Jesus uh, returns and the millennium takes place, there's this time of tribulation, uh, and there's a particular view related to this that says that Jesus will come back uh, secretly to take the, the church, particularly those who aren't Jewish believers, the Gentile church, out of the world, um, and there'll be this great period of tribulation in which many uh, of those who are Jewish will come to faith in Christ, and then the end will come, and these promises of God will be fulfilled to his people uh, of Israel in the millennium. Uh, so that's called pre-tribulational premillennialism. Um, I'll give you a quiz on that later. Uh, but uh, this is the second view, premillennialism, that it will come, the millennium will come suddenly and Jesus will return before the millennium. 
Now, hang with me. I know we're, we're digging into these things, and it's like, whoa, what are we talking about here? Uh, we'll, we'll put these things in context in a minute. The third perspective on this is called amillennialism, which says the millennium is now the church age, and when it ends, Jesus will return. It's really not the best term for it because it's not that they don't believe, this view doesn't believe that there's no millennium, as amillennialism suggests, but that there's an inaugurated millennialism, if you will. It's been realized in the here and now. The thousand years is a long period of time, not a literal period of time, uh, in which that came about through the resurrection of Jesus and will last until he returns. And during this time, those who have died in Christ reign spiritually with Christ in heaven, what's called the intermediate state, and God is at work through the church, and we are awaiting his return when we'll be raised from the dead, and God will make all things new. So these, these are just different perspectives, understanding what's going to happen when Christ returns, and, and particularly, how do we understand Revelation 20? Uh, for me, I'll tell you, uh, I lean towards an amillennial uh, view on this topic. Some people just throw their hands up and say, why does it matter? Um, and here's what I'd say, and I cover this not because I'm a nerd and I want you to learn all kinds of terminology about eschatology. Uh, I may be a nerd, but that's for another uh, debate. Uh, but here's the point. When we think about this topic, it's easy to say, who, who cares? I don't know. Jesus is coming. People get ready. Soon we'll be going home. I, like, I want to go there myself sometimes, right? But, but here's the point. It's in the Bible. And as God's people, we want to wrestle with the Bible. It's sanctifying to try to understand what God's word is saying. And because of that, we continually come back to it to, to, to wrestle with it and understand what it means. It, it means that there may be things that we're refined. And, and today I lean towards an amillennial perspective on this, this topic. You know, next year I may lean in another direction as I study God's word. One thing we shouldn't do is divide over this issue. Where the Bible is clear, we want to hold in unity. Where the Bible is unclear on this particular topic, we want to walk with charity, graciously walking with one another. There's a, there's a professor, a doctor at, uh, at one of our uh, seminaries in our uh, denomination and network of churches. His name's Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner's like, um, he's like the Dr. Fauci of New Testament uh, Bible stuff. You know, like, whatever you do today, you listen to Dr. Fauci. Like, what he says is what goes, right? Tom Schreiner's like Dr. Fauci, you know, just understand that. Here's what he said about this topic. Everything in God's word is important, yet good Christians have different views on this topic, particularly the millennium. He said a month ago, during this whole series he was teaching on Revelation, I would have said I'm an all-millennialist, but I've actually changed my mind as I've studied this passage. So how are you going to trust me tonight, right? I'm not, a very, I'm not very stable on this issue. But you know, that's a good thing to be reminded of. Our confidence isn't in a preacher, but our confidence is in God's word. It's the truth of God's word that matters, not my opinion towards it. And, and, and in fact, this was, that quote's from 2017. I read an article from him in 2019. He's back to his amillennialist perspective. Uh, so we wrestle with God's word and it sanctifies us. It's healthy. It's good to have these discussions. We don't divide over it, but it, it teaches us to be thankful for God's word. And this brings us to Daniel 8. We have these things that we know and these things that we debate, and they, they talk to us about what's to come, Jesus' return, and what's going to happen when he returns. And these questions about the signs and the events, uh, particularly this debatable, these debatable topics, is where we find ourselves when we come to Daniel 8. Now, 
Last week we looked at Daniel 7 and we saw these four beasts that represented four kingdoms. And the fourth beast in the fourth kingdom was really unique, unlike all of the others. And, and I think what I laid out in Daniel 7 is that the, the four kingdoms go from Babylon to, to the Persian, to what's often called the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Greek kingdom, and then this fourth kingdom, which I think is, is almost symbolic of the, the progression of human evil and rejection uh, of God that will climax at the end before Jesus returns. And there's this figure that we see as a little horn that uh, the New Testament speaks of as maybe the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness, one who will rise up and oppose God and will lead God's people astray and will deceive others uh, to, to not follow God and to oppose him. So Daniel 7 really is laying out a framework from Babylon all the way to the end of time. Now, here's the thing about Daniel 8. Um, when we come to Daniel 8, what we are going to see is that it fits within Daniel 7. It's a second vision that fits within Daniel 7. So uh, with, without further ado, let's, let's look at what Daniel 8 says. Um, In the third year of the reign of the king Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Now, Chapter 7 occurred during the first year of King Belshazzar. So two years later, there's the second vision that he sees. In chapter 2, in the vision, he's taken to a different place, which is about 100 or so, 150 miles so uh, from the, the area that he was at in Babylon to Susa, the capital, which would ultimately be a, a royal city during the Persian Empire. And there he's in this province of Elam, and he saw in the vision uh, he was at Ulai Canal, and he raised his eyes, and behold, he's going to see two more beasts, all right? Now, the beasts in this chapter are different than the beasts in the previous chapter. Listen to what he says. I raised my eyes, and I saw, behold, a ram there standing on the bank, and the ram had two horns, and they were both high, but one was higher than the other. Uh, and it was charging westward, southward, um, northward. Nobody could stand before him. No one could rescue him from his power, and he did as he pleased. Remember, these symbols are often pointing us to true realities. The symbol isn't the point, but it's pointing us to something real. And as we saw in chapter 7, the beasts are referencing kings and kingdoms. And so this is a kingdom that it's talking about. In verse 5, as I was considering it, uh, not a ram, but now a male goat that came westward across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And he had a conspicuous horn. It says that this is a male goat with a conspicuous horn between its two eyes, which basically means that this is a unicorn. If you wanted to see a unicorn, here it is right here in Daniel 8. But this, uh, this male goat with this conspicuous horn came at the ram with two horns. And so now we're getting a battle royale, right? The, the, uh, the, the male goat with one horn charging the, the, uh, the ram with two horns. And it says, as this took place, he ran at him with powerful wrath, verse 7, I saw him come close to the ram, and he was raged against him, struck the ram, broke his two horns, and the ram had no power before him, and he was trampled. And no one could rescue the ram from the power of the goat. And then the goat became exceedingly great, and he was strong, and the great horn was broken. And so now after this great horn is broken, there came up four conspicuous horns. The word of the day is conspicuous. Use conspicuous today uh, in the course uh, of your Sunday, right? Like find a way to talk about something conspicuous. So here's another conspicuous uh, set of horns. And it says, these horns went to the four winds of heaven. It's getting good now. Out of them came a little horn, another little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south and towards the east and towards the glorious land. Most likely a reference towards Israel, towards Jerusalem. It grew great, and even the host 
uh, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars that threw down to the ground and trampled on them it became great and even as great as the prince of hosts. And, and then it goes on to say that now it, it's attacking the, the, the offering system and the temple of God's people. It says that uh, uh, the host was given, the regular burnt offering was taken from him. The place of the sanctuary was overthrown. In verse 12, a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw it to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said, this is now an angel in a dream. How long is this to take place concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgressions that make, de- make it desolate and the giving of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Here's the word of God. Now let's pray and live, uh, live this out today, right? Uh, right? We, we got to understand this. What, what's happening with the beast? Let, let, me give, let me give you some points that I think are helpful when we look at apocalyptic visions. Again, this applies to Daniel 8, but honestly, it applies to all apocalyptic literature, revelation, other parts of, uh, of the prophets. And, and this is what we see. The symbols are not literal, but they point to something that is. Uh, somebody has said it this way, that in apocalyptic literature, you're getting an impressionistic painting of the future rather than a video recording of the future. So the symbols are important. They're not literal, but they point to something that is. So the beasts aren't literal. There's not going to be the unicorn goat that comes along uh, and destroys the ram with two horns, but there will be two kingdoms. And that's what's important. But when we interpret this, we have to interpret it in light of the original audience. And what's helpful here is our passage gives us an interpretation, which we'll look at in a minute. We need to ask ourselves always when we study the Bible, what would this passage meant to God's people at the time? And then, thirdly, we need to interpret this passage in light of the storyline of the Bible. Also, just a rule we should apply as we study the Scriptures. How does what proceeds in the Old Testament or follows in the New Testament help us understand what's being talked about? And this is why Daniel is so important for, say, understanding Revelation or understanding um, Jesus. And that's why the death and resurrection of Jesus is central to, to eschatology, to the study of end times, because it's in light of Jesus that we see both surprising fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies, uh, as well as a, a continuation or an extension of what God says in the Old Testament. And then the fourth thing I would say is that the events often are not chronological. I'm not saying they never are. But they're often not. We see uh, recapitulation or, or repetition of a same pattern or idea of an event, or we see overlapping events. And, and this vision, in a way, fits within, like we said earlier, the vision of chapter 7. And so the, in verses 15 through 26, we get the interpretation. And, and for the sake of time, I'm going to share a summary of what the interpretation is. Daniel, in the vision, is, is shown that the Babylonian kingdom that he's currently in exile under, will be followed by the Medo-Persian Empire, is what the vision uh, says in verses 15 through 26. And that empire will grow and be great for a time, but it'll eventually be defeated by the Greek Empire, led by a great king, which we know from history to be Alexander the Great. And out of one of these kingdoms, after, uh, excuse me, after Alexander the Great dies, which actually is fairly quickly after he arises to power, his generals... Uh, break up the Greek kingdom into four smaller kingdoms. And out of one of those kingdoms, uh, a, a ruler or a king who's particularly evil and sacrilegious will arise and attack Israel, desecrate the sacrificial system, and blaspheme God. And, and so here's an example. We talk about the end times. Uh, this is saying that this is referring to the, to the last days. It says in verse uh, 
16 that what Gabriel is saying is, is a, a message about the time of the end. Excuse me, verse 17. He said, understand, O son of man, the vision is for the time of the end, but not the very end. In fact, he tells us that it's in verse 19. It's the end of the indignation, the end of the, the period of time that he's talking about. So in a way, what's happening here is Daniel 8 is, is painting a picture for us of, of the type uh, of event and experience that, that's, that's happening in this moment in Israel's history that's going to happen again at the end of time before God comes. Uh, and so we have this uh, picture of, of this particular moment where one ruler arises. And, and as, as interpreters and commentators have looked at this passage and believers have studied this passage, the, the little horn that's referred to here that arises out of this Greek kingdom once it's broken up is, 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 is most likely Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV, who is a Seleucid king, if you know that period of time, who, uh, who arises to power during 175 or 164 BC. Now, interestingly, some people look at Daniel and they say there's no way Daniel can be prophetic. Uh, these things are too clear uh, that it had to have been written after the fact, like it had to have been written after Antiochus lived on the earth, and, and then uh, all of this came about, uh, rather than being written during this period of time. And, and what I would say is that Daniel seems to present itself not as, uh, as some fanciful story written after Daniel's time, but uh, when Jesus references the book of Daniel, he says it was written by the prophet Daniel. And Daniel says, I'm writing not after the fact, but during the fact, during the time of King Belshazzar, during the time of King Darius. Uh, and so we have all these indications that this isn't something that occurs after the fact, but that something that God is revealing to his people ahead of time to show them what's going to come about. And, and it says that of, of Antiochus, uh, of this king, he's going to be prideful. He's going to bring about destruction in verse 24. Uh, he's going to deceive people. He's going to blaspheme God and the, the sacrificial system. And, and if you look in history, in the history of the, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a book written called uh, First Maccabeus that, that records this time in the period of Israel's history. And this king, King Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, which means God manifest, he thought so greatly of himself to call himself God manifest, arises and, and, and attacks God's people Israel. He, he sacri sacrifices, uh, profane sacrifices in the temple. He stops God's people from offering sacrifices. He blasphemes God. He, he, he brings himself up against God and his people. But... In, in our passage, it says that at, in verse 25, after he does these things, he shall be broken, but by no human hand. And, and we learn from 1 Maccabeus that Antiochus Epiphanes dies, not during battle, but uh, while uh, the accounts vary, one thing is clear. The one who considered him God manifest suddenly and unexplainably dies, attributable to no human hand, but history tells us He's put to death. He dies. The message that we saw last week in Daniel 7 is still the same message. God wins. God allows this time of trial and persecution to come against God's people, but he only allows it for a period of time. I think it says that these 2,300 days, uh, mornings and, and evenings, this defined period of time that God allows for this, this trial and tribulation to occur, but God brings it to an end. God intervenes for the good of his people. He is victorious. And so we have here this 
this more narrow vision that speaks of what's going to come after Israel is brought out of exile. After they go back to the land, God's saying, look, that it's not going to get better immediately. There are going to be other kingdoms that arise and that are going to come against you, God's people. But know that when they do, it won't come longer than I intend and then I will win. I will be victorious. It's a message of comfort. It's a message of hope to God's people. And as we look at Daniel 8 and we understand this topic of the end times, we have to ask, so what? What does it mean? And I I just want to end with these three truths. The The first is this, that God controls the future. When you think about this message, do you know that not only God knows the future, but God controls the future? Do you have room in your understanding of God for Amos 3, 6 that says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Lamentations 3.27, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Proverbs 19.21 says, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God is the one who not only knows the future, but God controls the future. Nothing comes apart from his hand. What comfort there is to know that as we face the uncertainty of whatever moment we find ourselves in, whatever trial we find ourselves in, that God controls the future. And the second thing we see is that God cares about us. I can't help but think when I think about what God is saying to Israel, and he's telling them ahead of time what's going to come, how, how encouraging it must have been when they, when they saw it happening, and God's people said, Hey, this is, what, this is what was written. This is what God said would happen. God, here's what I want you to think. Every time you open the Bible, I want you to think this. God cared enough about me to make himself known to me. God cared enough about me to make himself known to me. He made himself known to us in his word and through coming in the flesh. The God who controls the future stepped into human history to die on the cross and to rise from the dead so that we could spend eternity with him. I think sometimes when we face trials like we find ourselves in right now, we think, why is this happening? Why did God allow this? Why the pain and the sorrow? Why, why the coronavirus, God? Why do you allow these things? Why do you allow this trial in my life? You know, honestly, at times there's not always a clear-cut reason. We don't have a definitive reason that this happened or that happened. But one thing we can say as a follower of Christ is that whatever God permits or determines is never because he doesn't love us. And we know that to be true because he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whatever trial and trouble we may face, we can be confident that God loves us. He cares for his people. He's revealed himself in his word and he's revealed himself in Jesus. And we can take comfort in that. The God who controls all things loves you loves you personally, loves you sacrificially, loves you faithfully. And then finally, God calls us to persevere. As I've been thinking about this topic, it's come to mind um, some authors actually that I first discovered through a conversation with my wife as she read some of their books, uh, two authors in particular that come to my mind, Gloria Furman and Jen Wilkin, uh, talk a lot about uh, living uh, in the mundane in light of eternity. And, and I think often when we think about eternity, either our busyness distracts us or our discouragement keeps us from, from living in light of eternity. In fact, um, Gloria Furman says that we have amnesia 
when we face trials and troubles. The amnesia results in us forgetting about tomorrow and forgetting about eternity. We get fixated on what's right in front of us, and and we forget that this day will end, (laughs) that tomorrow will come. Sometimes it comes from sinful distraction because we love what's right in front of us and we don't think about tomorrow, or, or sometimes it comes because of heavy discouragement when we are wrestling and we hate what we're going through. We forget about tomorrow. We, f- we, we forget that today isn't it, that tomorrow will come, and it gives us a, a perspective when we keep that in mind when our day is, is good or maybe our day is hard that, that today isn't the end, that tomorrow is coming. But we also forget eternity. We forget that God has an eternal plan for us in the mundane. I think this is the challenge right now where we find ourselves. Your day looks maybe similar to what it looked like yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before and the day before. Or maybe uh, you're not at home, but you're going out, but still the days look the same and, and things are just weird and they're off and we, we're going through these motions and it's like we can forget that we were made for eternity. God made us in his image and we're meant to live with God forever. And, and how that should infuse our everyday life with this glorious truth of what's to come. Furman says that when the mundane looms larger than the eternal, we forget who God is and who we are and what God has called us to. We, we in light of what God has told us about what's to come, can persevere in the present. Here, here's the, the, the reason this matters so much. When we think about eternity, when we think about these things that relate to the end of times, we can persevere in the present when we remember that God holds our tomorrow in his hand and he's made us for eternity. If we can do that, that will sustain us in our deepest discouragement and frustrations as well as infuse our everyday life with a sense of God's glorious eternal promises. That's the hope that we have. So here's this overview of eschatology and the beast of Daniel 8. And all of it comes home to us. And God says, know that I'm at work controlling all things. Nothing in your life happens apart from my hand. I care for you. I love you. And persevere. Persevere because tomorrow's in my hand and I made you for eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this truth that really steps into and confronts us in our everyday uh, reality and, and reminds us that we're, we're made for eternity. We're made for you. We're made to worship and live for you. And, and God, sometimes we just get distracted from what matters most and we, we get discouraged because things are hard. But God, thank you that you've given us your word. You, you show us what's to come so we can have confidence in the presence. You tell us what's to come so we can have hope that helps us to endure and persevere. And God, we can know that you love us. What grace that you would tell us these things. What grace that you would reveal yourself in your word. What grace that you would come in Jesus. And that we can know even when we don't have answers as to what's happening to us, we can always with confidence know that you love us and that you're working out your plan for your glory, and for our good. God, thank you for your word, even the hard things in it. Help make us more like you as we continually come back again and again to your word to be more and more conformed in the image of Christ to the one who came and who is coming again. We ask this in his name, amen.